and you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast sharing inspiring stories from adventurers around the world. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'm talking with the Canada-based adventurer and runner, JMK. JMK ran semi-barefoot around Canada, the US and Mexico on an epic journey from the Arctic Circle to what is known as the end of the world. So your journey from Montreal to the bottom of Mexico, that was between July of 2013 and October of 2014, and you covered 4,654 kilometers. Why did you pick this route? Yeah, the original plan was um, to run. So again, you know, brainstorming what what I could do to kind of stand apart and and you know do something out of the ordinary and to hopefully motivate someone at some point in history, uh, you know, be a point of reference for to inspire people. Um, I. Given my resources, I said, what can I do and what would I have? And then it's like, I guess I can run. And then I did a little bit of research and there's already some people that already ran across the world or around the world. And I said, okay, so like, how can I do it different? And that's how I chose uh, running with zero shoes or semi barefoot. And the original plan was to run uh, in my own continent, right? From so Montreal is very far up north, all the way to the bottom. And so I picked the last town in in South America, which is Ushuaia. And it's funny because it's it's also known as the end of the world. So that's why <laughs> I call my project run, running to the end of the world. That's a great um, name. So this, yeah. So um, when I did that run, I didn't have any experience doing anything like it. So it was, I, I was pretty much bushwalking my way into that. Uh, originally, I was planning on doing everything in one shot. Um, I made it only to the border of Mexico, uh, the southern border of Mexico. And, and then I had, I had some financial um, troubles and I had to come back to Canada. And uh, so now I'm, you know, having that experience, I, I'm and restructuring and making the project smarter, you know, and easier to, to plan uh, for me and for whoever is supporting and for brands to come on board. Cause also like that was going to take me three years. So, you know, getting partners involved and like filming, uh, you know, getting everything documented, it's just harder to get a camera person to follow you for three years, you know, to leave their, whatever they're doing. And because yeah, everyone has sure. jobs and responsibilities and bills to pay. So, yeah. So now, now I'm doing, uh, you know, planning leg like specific legs uh, every year. So this fall I'm doing, uh, I'm going all the way up North kind of, uh, covering what I didn't do. So Montreal, you, you still have a big chunk of Canada, which is huge going up North. So talk to you, took in, in the, is the end of the road pretty much is this the farthest nor- North you can go in, in North America. Um, so I'm going to start from talk to you, in Norwest territories, which is part of the Arctic circle, and then run straight down on that road to Tesling, which is a little small town, um, at the border of Yukon territories and BC. And then, and then the ne- uh, next year I'm planning to start from there and then go down to Montana. So Montana, if you look at the map is pretty much on the same level as Montreal. So that will complete North America. And then the following year will be, I, I'm going to see if I can do, it'll take me three months to do Central America and then another three years to do South America. And that will complete the full length of, uh, you know, the, the continent, the American continent. So that's the, the project. Such an impressive amount of territory to cover. And it's pretty good that you can break it up into these different legs because you can really sort of home in and focus on each area you're going through, which is awesome. When you were doing the first sort of leg of the journey, how many hours a day were you running for at a time? Um, so I wouldn't base it by 
time is more like where is the next point so it takes me about a year to plan it and when i'm planning i'm i already know uh you know give or take where i'm gonna be so the first leg was uh the original plan was 50 kilometers per day so 25 kilometers in the morning 25 kilometers in the evening uh and so those distances are arranged in a certain way so i can you know after running three or four five six or seven days depending on on the geographical location mm-hmm. i can i can go to a, a specific town to um to i can ref, refill my resources like food water and and all that uh, yeah it's, it's funny because every in most places every 30 kilometers you, you're gonna find a a, a place a, like a small village or anything where you can find water and food mm. and 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 that goes with the you know the the like the distance 30 kilometers is what an average person can walk in a day so back in the day when there was no cars uh you know if everyone's walking that that kind of makes sense you know if you want to go to the next town in one day then you can do it easily so so now these the second leg i'm I'm planning it like that so i'm doing a little bit more conservative 30 kilometers per day obviously it's it goes more with how my body is feeling yeah so you know just listening to your body how how much recovery you get uh, you know, if you got injured, if, how you're feeling. So I'll do, I could do less or more depending on, on how my body feels. Can you tell me why you chose to do semi-barefoot running? Yeah, so um, I was working at a call center uh, doing surveys when I was in university. And I bumped into this article, it was a magazine next to me. And on my break, I started to read it. There was an article about barefoot running. And I found it very interesting. And so back then I was doing competitive running with uh, the varsity team cross country at Concordia University in Montreal. And uh, injury is always a barrier for every athlete. Um, I think pretty much every athlete, uh, you know, gets injured at some point. And they were talking about how barefoot running can help you overcome or avoid injury. So I got you know, it caught my attention and started doing a little bit of research and, and found a lot of information, uh, on barefoot running, how, um, it's so natural to us, you know, humans that we don't really would be needing shoes. It's like a bird that, you know, as soon as a bird is born, you don't need device, like they don't need devices to fly. <laughs> They're capable of flying without anything. It was the same as, for us but i guess you know for comfort or you know like different purposes we created issues that we wear every day <clears throat> yeah so it's a long process to to adapt because you know since you're born they put shoes on and it's funny because babies they don't a lot of the ba- a lot of babies they don't like getting shoes on their feet <laughs> uh but in the parents force them to have shoes until they get used to it so yeah, so it's it's a long process to to uh, adapt to going back to barefoot. It took me about twelve months to uh, I got injured, and then so the whole process was about twelve months to to be able to run barefoot. And yeah, so running barefoot is you know there's the science behind is you basically which makes a lot of sense that um, you know you're actually utilizing uh, muscles you're actually feeling the ground and utilizing muscles that normally you wouldn't use because the shoe is doing that work for you, all the cushioning and all the technology. And so you start strengthening uh, muscles that you never used before. Um, and, and yeah, so that's basically the, the, the reason behind. It's an interesting thought that shoes could actually be a barrier um, and that we've kind of been conditioned in society to wear them, whereas actually it's probably not doing us as many favours as we want it to in terms of our physical ability, in terms of sports and exercise. So that's an interesting yeah. concept, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say shoes are bad for you. Like, um, I still believe that, uh, you know, if you, if you adapt to running barefoot and, and you strengthen 
those muscles that you normally you, you don't use and then put back your your sneakers uh, i believe you can run even faster but because uh, because yeah because the shoes add that layer of protection right and comfort so it allows you to uh, to run uh, faster but however i find that shoes are like pres- prescription glasses like not you can't just pick any shoe and 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 that's why there's so many injuries among runners because typically you're wearing the wrong shoe for you so you have to know your body you have to know your feet you have to know your stride and how you land and 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 find the right shoe for you but yeah but i think barefoot uh uh running or just being being barefoot it helps you connect and feel what you're you're um, landing and and provide that feedback to your body and and then your body will act accordingly i, I think it's a, a very natural way of of uh yeah walking or running so what exactly is the zero shoe can you describe that for me yeah so the so the zero shoes um, it's uh, a brand that started making these huaraches. Huaraches is a Spanish name for sandals. Uh, and so Steven Sashin, he, he created these huarache inspiring the Tarahumara tribes. It's a tribe in Mexico that they've been barefoot for centuries and they still barefoot. So they run, they're known to run with huaraches uh, just as a tradition they just do it and then they mail stuff and they do it barefoot and they they have also uh, i think it's called a ball game where they they're always they run hundreds of kilometers uh kicking a ball um yeah so he i guess he had a um experience with this community and and he was fascinated about it and then he created he started making these running sandals inspiring that tribe Another reason I picked these these warache is because the material he uses for for the sole, um, it's incredible durable. Like a regular running shoe will last you any, anywhere from three to five hundred kilometers, and then you have to replace it. Um, these waraches are, uh, you know, warranted to last you for five thousand kilometers. Sorry. 5,000, 5,000 miles actually. Wow. Yeah. And, 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 and I gotta say, uh, they do last that long because I run with those from Montreal to the bottom of Mexico Wow. and you can barely see any wearing on, on, on the bottom. Yeah. That's incredible. And is there any reason you're doing it purely on foot? Like, would you consider cycling any of the journey or do you want this to be entirely sort of run? No, it's going to be just running. Um, yeah, it's going to be, it's funny the other day I was thinking, cause I don't like, I was telling, um, the other day, a, a person, uh, that I, I, um, uh, <laughs> I'm not just running. So the, the, the length from Tuktoyak to, to Tesling is about 1500 kilometers. And so I'm not just running 1500 kilometers. Like I, my training plan, which is pretty steep, is starting in December. So it's a very short period of time for training. And, and, you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, people only see the, the result, the end result, which is, oh, he ran 1500 kilometers, but not really. I've been running since December and it's a lot of mileage. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So I was thinking the other day during one of my runs, I was like, oh my God, this is a lot of running, you know, um, it's tiring and I don't know if I'm going to be able to, you know, to do next year's run. Maybe I already run too much, (laughs) but then I had to, so, and, and I was running on a mindset where, where, um, you know, I was super tired. Like I would, in the past couple of weeks, I've been in the transition from being unemployed for, several months like it was i was uh let go in september 2019 uh no that's not true september 2020 i mean it's been the pandemic has been crazy like i (laughs) I know it's such a time warp (laughs) yeah so anyways i've been unemployed for several months and i finally a couple weeks ago got a job so this transition of 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, training, I had a very intense day. So I was training for six days a week, like 10 hours a day. And then I have to sneak in my runs in between them. Uh, you know, I was waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning to do my runs. And then I was way too tired with lack of sleep. So I was like, I guess I have to do it after after uh, work. Yeah. You know, after 10 hours of work, you come back home. You just want to relax, eat. and I guess uh, your whole schedule has been completely readjusted now, hasn't it? Yeah. And then, so I was enjoying the runs. I was like, Oh my God, I don't feel like running today, but I have to run. So my mindset, it was going into this uh, path that was going to lead me to nowhere because I wasn't enjoying my runs. So there's like, okay, I have to change this mentality, you know, and get into a different mindset. Like I will see when I, when I'm driving and I see someone running, it's like, uh, so pleasurable. Like you see people enjoying that run. It's like, why can I do that? So now in the past couple of runs uh, that I've done, I had a different mindset and trying to enjoy that run. Um, and it's completely different instead of being, I was like, Oh, I have to go for a run. He's like, okay. It's, you know, it's like, I, I'm going to go for a run cause I'm going to have fun today. And, and yeah, it's completely different. Something that you have to do to something that you want to do. Yeah. yeah. It's like a mental trickery in a way, but it changes yeah. the whole outlook and perspective of the situation. Yeah. Um, and the route you chose passed through so many different states. By running through these states, you must have spent a fair bit of time immersing yourself into different cultures around you and learn about maybe their crafts, their cuisines, traditions, and so forth. What was the most interesting or surprising local custom that you learned about? Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of different things that I've encountered. Um, I remember what it comes to mind right now in, in the United States, it really, you really notice this Southern hospitality. So when you get into the Southern states, you know, Alabama, Texas, and uh, Georgia, uh, you really feel that warmth of people like greeting you and just the way they talk to you uh, compared to the Northern states where the people are colder and uh, not as warm as Southern people. So that was one. And also the food, you know, you, they have their traditional I, in Southern states. I was introduced for the first time to the po famous po boys. And also I, I remember one, one night I stayed uh, at a campground and this family fed me squirrels for the first time. That was squirrels. That was a very, <laughs> what do they squirrels. taste like? Yeah. Oh my God. It's just like, Chew the like very chewy chicken, but um, <laughs> oh no, yeah, fair enough. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't the most pleasant experience because I mean, a squirrel is very small, and you know, even though they're cooked, you can still see the shape, so it's <laughs> uh, it's it kind of terrifying, but I mean, you're you're that the experience, uh, like. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, when you're doing these things, you're open to, you know, immersing yourself to, to different cultures and different experiences. Yeah. And then I remember in Mexico, there is, there's a town, they have this cemetery, which uh very different from any, any other cemetery I've been to. Yeah. Um, I think National Geographic made a, uh, an article about it. So the bones of the corpse are exposed rather than buried. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it, it sounds really creepy, but actually when you enter this cemetery, you have this extremely positive feeling, like Aww. a really positive vibe, like very welcoming. It's, it's very, it's a very, it was a very strange experience. <laughs> but so you're walking... You're, you're walking these aisles, you know, with graves on um, both sides of you. There's like, it's like a, like shelving units with <laughs> little, little squares and you can see the bones there and, you know, the, the crane and sometimes there's a little bit of hair, but you see them there. And every year uh, the families go there and then dust the, the bones. And so you can see everything is, is exposed there. And, and it's just, it's just a very, uh, you know, when you go to a cemetery, it's like a weird vibe. It's like, okay, there's a lot of dead people here. 
but when you go to these cemeteries, it's not like that. It's, it's very different. So I don't know what it is about that. But yeah, that was definitely a, a very unique experience. Maybe visually being able to see the bone kind of in a weird way brings you closer to it. Where did you say that was? Uh, this this is in, I can't remember if it was Campeche uh, or Veracruz. I think it was in Campeche in Mexico. It's like the, one of the oh. south, southern states. Because Me- yeah. the Mexican, are, they, they do the celebration of life, don't they? They're quite, they're quite celebratory with um, funerals and so, and so forth. Well, this, they do is the Dia de los Muertos is the celebration of death. Oh, life. that was it. Sorry. <laughs> That's the complete opposite of fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of got the wires crossed yeah. on that one. But yeah, I know. What yeah. <laughs> which is, which is, which is a tradition that, you know, today uh, for me, I still don't understand, but hey, you know, Disney made a movie about it. I was Coco, literally about and, to say Coco is such a good Disney movie. So yeah, which, yeah. yeah, it looks very colorful and nice, but yeah. It's definitely a very important tradition in Mexico. Yeah. How about the characters you met? Did you meet any notable people or was there any person in particular that stood out to you um, that you remember now? Along well, the I met, I've met so many people there and it's hard to say. Um, I don't know. Everyone is incredible. Yeah. I, got, I met ex-military people that, uh, you know, they invited me to uh, skydive. I met waitresses wow. that invited me. They took me to to swim in the ocean for the first time during my run. Nice. Uh, did laundry did laundry for me. They collected all the tips from all the waiters in that restaurant and they donated to me. That's so Honestly, sweet. Yeah, it's really nice. And and to be honest, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do these because you know what you read in books, when you uh, see on TV, when you see in the news is is not what reality is like the media is just a saturation of 95% negativity that is happening in the world and they don't show you all the you know all the positive things that are happening in the world um yeah for me it was it was eye opening it, it was mind blowing how good people are in general um they're very, they're always, you know, welcoming, trying to help, uh, generous, very, very generous. Like I got so many people inviting me to their homes. They will cook for me. They'll let me shower at their place. That's um, so awesome. Some, yeah, some other, other people are a little bit hesitant, but once they, you know, they get to know you a little bit and know what you're doing, they completely open up to you and, and it's such a great feeling and it's, it's, very, it's a very strange feeling because after you spend a few hours talking to them in a, in a such an open uh, manner, it feels like you know them for years, for years, yeah. even though you met them for a very few minutes. So, and it goes, it goes both sides, like they're, they open to you and you open to them. So, so you create these really uh, intimate and strong bonds right away. It's it's fascinating, and that's why I'm doing it. I'm doing I'm continuing to to doing these projects, and because it's it's probably one of the best, or if not the best, experiences I've done in my life. Yeah, that's incredible. You mentioned that people sort of invited you or offered out their homes. What what were your sleeping arrangements along the journey? Like, where were you staying as you went along? So there was a variation of uh, a combination of different things. Um, I, I did a little bit of couch surfing. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. It's quite common. Travelers do that a lot. Don't Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I, um, you know, social media was a a very helpful and powerful tool for me to, to communicate because then, you know, people on my, on my, on my social will say, Hey, you're going to that town. I know someone and then I'll connect it right away with someone in that town and, and I'll have somewhere to sleep. But also I'll, I, I try to um, get a, a sponsor night at a hotel where I'm going, if there is a hotel or uh, yeah. And then last, last resort, I have my tent nice. and I'll just literally uh, you would think, 
Yeah, you will think that, you know, when you're running in the middle of nowhere, you can just pitch your tent anywhere and you can't really <laughs> when you're running on the road. Yeah. When you're running on the road, basically all the land is owned by someone. So everything is like private property and you can't just really just pitch your tent there. Uh, so what I would do is basically just, you know, I'm finished my run and then I go and knock on doors and tell them what I'm doing and ask them for permission to pitch my tent in the front yard or the backyard. And yeah, that's a lot of times what, what I did. <laughs> that's a nice way. That's actually quite a nice, it's a little subtle. This is this awesome thing I'm doing right now. It's also very non-invasive because what you're asking for is like a square of their garden and per se. So yeah, I don't yeah. see any harm in that. Yeah. Um, and did you have any friends or family come and join you throughout the course of the the trip on your first 15 months not like not running per se but um i had my well obviously i i saw families when i was running through their town but my coach or ex-coach john lafranco from concordia university he actually surprised me he he was in new york city when i arrived there and it was really nice to see him there and uh yeah so i spent the day with him there um i met my brother who was on a road trip uh on his own with his wife to south america as well i met him on the way there so i met him in washington dc i think and then on the way back i met him in houston i can't remember amazing it was such a long time ago yeah yeah i will i will get sometimes people you know wanting to join running with me and sometimes they did like they will run with me like a section of the day but then, and people will ask me, say, hey, can I come with you and run for a few days? And unfortunately, normally I would say no, because, you know, but because like, I don't want to have any liability or responsibility of, you know, if anything happens to yeah. it, so I'm running on the road. And if anything would happen, like, I don't want that, was that on your to shoulders. be, because it's my project. Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. my project. And, you know, if anything happens to me, I'm okay with that, but I'm not okay if anything happens to someone else. And then in, there is the, the uh, you know, I don't know if you ever run with someone. It could be a super pleasant conversation uh, or it could be really awkward. And then <laughs> you're running for two, three, four hours. It's like, oh my God, what I got myself into, you know? <laughs> That's so, hilarious. Yeah. So I, I, I I prefer, I prefer to, you know, keep my thing, my thing. And then, um, unless I know the, the, the person and, and yeah. I know it's going to be, a, a, a it's a bit safer territory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that you raised money for charity on your first run. Can you tell me which charities you picked and why? Yeah. So on my first run, the, the focus, uh, or the cause for the run was, to raise awareness on, you know, improving our, educa our traditional educational methods, because I thought they were uh, really archaic. I, I didn't think I, they were. I mean, they're finally, you know, thanks to the pandemic, education is finally evolving the way it should be a long time ago. Uh, but yeah, like I remember my university years, it was going to these lectures, three hour lectures, and it was, they were boring as hell. Like the teacher will basically read what the book says. And, you know, if there were 50 people in that class, only 25 will show up and then only 10 are paying or five will paying attention. Everyone else is like under laptops or cell phones doing something else. So I thought that had to change that it needed to evolve. So that was my um, uh, shout out on, on my first run. And then, so my plan was, to partner up with a specific foundation uh, focused in education in each country. So for the duration of uh, my run through that country, that was a duration of time of to raise money for that specific foundation. So in Canada was Pathways to Education. In USA was Edible Schoolyard. And I didn't find one in Mexico. Uh, but yeah, in every country I will have one and then raise funds for them. Um, we didn't do very well because you need, I realized that, uh, you know, making a fundraiser is successful. You need a full-time team to do that mm. or at least one person to do it. And I was doing everything myself from like the actual run 
uh, all my marketing, social media, you know, all the PR, like I was, I was doing everything myself. So yeah. I, I, yeah, I just didn't have the time or energy necessary to make a, a fundraiser successful. So yeah, I, we did raise a little bit, like people donated on my website. I had a donation button there and uh, I did what I could. But so now for this run, um, I actually partner with uh, two friends who are filmmakers in Whistler. Uh, their their company is called uh, Lot17.ca. Helen and Anna. They they're gonna tag along and film the leg two for this project and make a documentary. And now uh, the focus or the cause for for these run, it was kind of their idea as well um, because I had an accident three years ago and my last three years during recovery, mental health has been a uh, daily thing, a very important part. And especially now with COVID as well, I think for everyone now mental health has become a priority. So yeah, so the documentary is going to be focused on uh, uh, mental health. And especially for men, because there's there are statistics that say that guys commit suicide four times more than 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 women. And so and it kind of like if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because guys, you know, they don't like talking about their uh, personal stuff, their intimacy or show weakness. Uh, it's like, no, I'm OK. It's like I'm not going to show, you know. I'm not going to talk about my, my internal issues. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So it's, so these, this second leg is going to be about that. Amazing. Trying to start a conversation and make guys understand that it's okay. If you cry, it's okay. If you talk about your feelings, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Can we explore the accident in a bit more detail? So it was 2018 that you had a snowboarding accident, wasn't it? Can you walk me through what happened and what the extent was? About? Yeah. So, when I came back to Canada, I relocated to Whistler and I landed a job as a photographer because, you know, during my first run, I was taking pictures and posting on social media every day, just showing people where I was and the things that I was experiencing. And uh, so, yeah, so I got this job in, in Whistler with a Mountain, which it's a, it's a company, Coast Mountain Photography, that does pretty much has the, um, the exclusivity to take the photos on the mountain. So it was an, an on-mountain photographer taking portraits of family skiing. And on one day, it, this was March 22nd, 2018, I caught an edge. I was going quite fast. I had a brand new snowboard and, uh, and went off piste and hit some trees, shattered my femur on, uh, uh, in four Ooh, pieces. So nasty. I had a compression fracture on my thoracic spine in, and broke my helmet, had a concussion. And uh, my bone, my bones on, on my femur took 11 months to heal. So it's, I was told I was within the 1% that will take the longest to feel for such a injury. And so I couldn't, I wasn't in bed uh, and for like so many months, I got into really dark times, periods of time. Uh, yeah, it was difficult. Like, I think people now that, you know, they tried isolating with the pandemic, they can have a little bit of an idea of what it is not to be able to go out. But now try that being in, in bed without, without <laughs> being able to walk. It's horrible. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It hasn't been easy. I'm still recovering. I still have chronic pain on my spine. Uh, it affects my life. Did you know it was going to be serious straight away? Like the minute the accident happened, what do you remember what you were thinking about at the time? Well, I mean, I mean, you're not, you really aren't thinking ahead of time. Like you're not thinking in the future. You're just thinking, Oh my God, what just happened? Yeah. And like everything happens so fast. And when I got, when ski patrol came, they gassed me right away. So I was drugged and, you know, so I couldn't feel any more pain. Wow. And then I will like wake up and I'm, I'm being taken down or they couldn't take him, taking me off the mountain on the helicopter because how deep in the trees I was. And because the weather wasn't, um, uh, properly for, for flying. 
And uh, so they basically took me in a sled down the mountain. And I remember it was bumpy. Like I remember waking up and I was like, okay, I guess we're going down. And next time I wake up, I'm in, at the hospital and the doctor is telling me, okay, so you, we're taking you to Vancouver for surgery right away. And I was like, okay. And then like everything is like, you don't have time to think like everything is like they're just giving you the information what's going on and you're just like okay 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 yeah, for <laughs> you sure. know i remember just saying it's it's a two-hour drive to um vancouver from whistler and i just remember saying is like can we watch some netflix in in the ambulance or can we stop at mcdonald's for some food or something <laughs> i was still on drugs. pretty high on drugs just like let's get a mcdonald's on the road and yeah. get an excruciating pain oh my goodness that's funny yeah and even the surgery happened like everything happened so fast so i got to the to the hospital in vancouver they didn't have a room available so i was on the hallway for a few hours and finally they assigned me to a room when they tra- transfer me from the stretcher to the bed, they roll me. That was the most painful thing oh. I ever experienced in my life. Yeah. Like I yelled so so loud that the guy next in the next room, uh, an old guy said, "What are they? Are they? What are they doing to him?" <laughs> and you mentioned this put you in quite a dark place mentally. Um, what were you doing to look after your mental health and mental well-being at the time? Well, I. <laughs> It's hard. Mm. I think I've, I've reached out to people. Like I remember messaging, uh, you know, the community there in Whistler through Facebook. It's yeah. like, hey guys, I had this kind of injury. Anyone? Because I knew there, and there's a lot of people that gets injured in Whistler because yeah. of skiing on the bike park in the summer. So I knew someone will have some answer. And in fact, yeah, two people answered, you know, well, I had the same kind of injury and it took, it took me. So the, the, the main concern for me at that time and still is, is pain. So pain is, you know, what you most struggle with. So I wanted to know if the pain is going to go away and when the pain is going to go away and how, like, what are the things that you can do for the pain to go away? Yeah. Because the doctors, like the doctors are telling you, well, it might not go away at all. Or really? it might pain. go away. It might go away within a week or months or years. We don't know. And you're like, okay, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> That's not helpful so, at all. Yeah. So so I mess started messaging people, you know, like, and then I got a couple of replies. Like people had injuries similar to mine, and they said, well, my pain went away after 15 years. And the other person was like, yeah, mine went about after 16 years. And at that point, I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, I'm going to have this pain for 15 years? So it's it's kind of relieving and devastating at the same time. Because yeah. then I was like, okay, so now I, I have kind of a reference. But then, damn. I guess you like, can manage your own expectations a bit better. Yeah, but then again... So it's a very tricky thing because it really depends on you. So depends on your mindset and the things that you do. Uh, and yeah, so everything, from what I've, I've been learning. So like I've, I've reached, I just reach out to any help, you know, whether it's specialists, physiotherapy, uh, you know, acupuncture, uh, psychologies, like you name it, chiropractor. And you, and just ask. And if, you know, you get some answers from a specialist and you get some other answers from someone else and just keep asking and asking and asking to, to have a better understanding of what's happening to you. And now, now I understand more about pain. Um, I understand that it's, it's, kind of my way out is in uh, neuroplasticity what's that so the brain is capable it's plastic which is cap- the, the brain is capable of changing which not many years ago we believed that the brain was uh fixed like we believe that areas of the brain were assigned to different motions on, or signals and activities like talking will belong to a certain region of the brain and it was fixed. And if you damage that part of your brain, 
you're done. You won't able you you won't be able to talk. But then there's there's been studies. There's a book that I'm reading. It's called The Brain That Changes Itself and by, by Norman Deutsch, and it tells you all about this neuroplasticity and how the brain. Um, you know, there was a person who had a stroke and wasn't able to talk properly, wasn't able to move some part of, of, of her body. And then she, she trained her, she did certain, she, she came up with certain exercises and training for her brain. And after a few months, a few weeks or a few months of doing that for several hours uh, a week, she was able to uh, recover those actions in those movements in her body and talk normal again. And that means, and they, they did reading on, on the brain and they realized that other parts of the brain to cover what was damaged and make and relearn how to do, do things. So it goes the same thing for, for, for the, uh, for the pain. So the pain is, we have those neuropaths uh, and it's like, it's like to better understanding is like walking is like going for a hike. When you go for a hike, you use a trail, right? And normally, you know, humans, we usually use the same trails to go for these hikes. And if you use this, the same trail over and over again, the trail, it gets more obvious and it's easier to, uh, to use it. It's the same thing with the neuropaths. So as you use it more and more, uh, it's easier to to walk through that neuropath. So, so from my understanding, the pain gets hooked in these negative neuropaths. So you have to create new neuropaths that are positive, and in order to abandon the negative ones. So it's a very fascinating, very complex, and interesting topic. But it's also very inspiring. Yeah. And so there's a lot of things, anything like you have to do things that you like, new, you have to try new things, learn new things. So you create those new connections in your brain and anything from meditation. So stress, I, I also learned that stress is, uh, you know, directly connected to your pain. Like stress will make your pain worse. And so you have a stressful day at work, uh, it, it will make it worse. Uh, so lowering your levels of stress with meditation, with going for a walk, uh, you know, reading, listening to music, you know, putting a nice scent, you know, smelling uh, something nice, doing things that you like, like all these things are things that I, I tried. I also, my one of my brothers, uh, uh, has a company in virtual reality. So he, he's got an app called happiness and he told me you should try uh, VR, you know, and he told me to buy a VR headset and I did. So, and I tried it and it's amazing. And I, I, I bought, I got it for, uh, you know, during the first wave of the pandemic and when everyone was in lockdown and it actually, it was amazing. Cause then instead of you sitting in your living room, thinking about, why are we locking down? Like what's going to happen to the world? Like, you know, all these negative thoughts, you put your headset on and you can be in a museum in another country. You can be looking at the Northern lights in outer space. You can be in a castle in Germany. Yeah, you can, like you so can cool. be, you can be, you, <laughs> you can be watching elephants in Africa. Like, and it just takes your mind somewhere else. And, and it, that helps a lot with, that diverts uh, pain know, too. Um, if you focus on something else and distract yourself, then it suppresses other feelings. Um, so there's probably a direct correlation there. It's really interesting. Exactly. So I also wanted to loop back round to our discussion earlier on the Arctic Circle. You'll be running 1,549 kilometers from the tip of the Arctic Circle to Tessin and Yukon in 60 days. Can you tell me a bit more about this journey? So again, because this is the farthest north you can go on the road, yeah, up north, and uh, and yeah, and then it's a road that goes from north to south. Yeah, that's pretty much. And well, that's not true. So there's another reason why, because this road goes through Tombstone National, uh, sorry, Tombstone Territorial Park, mm. which is also known as the Patagonia of North America. So. Yeah, the views there, the mountains, they're mind-blowing. And as yeah. a photographer, and, you know, for for the documentary, I think we're going to get amazing photos and footage there. 
What kind of wildlife do you expect to encounter there? Because that's going to be a hot spot for nature. Uh, yeah. Um, there's, I've been reading there's a lot of different animals that are going to be up there. Um, the ones that we are more interested in countries, polar bears. bears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, anywhere from that, we, we probably, we, hopefully we see, because there's huge herds of uh, caribou and hopefully we see moose. I've never seen a male moose. Um, we, we, uh, well, I, where I live, I live in Canmore is in the Rocky mountains. So we have a lot of, of those animals as well, especially here. We see a lot of elk and uh, black bears. Um, I've seen more black bears in, in Whistler, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's so many species of birds. I can't remember the names, but um but yeah there's especially polar bears hopefully we'll get to see a, a polar bear have you ever had a dangerous encounter with one or any bears or wildlife like that so no nice, um, good. <laughs> i mean i know i know i know it can be dangerous but i also know i did a kayaking trip with a friend uh, to northern quebec yeah many years ago and and where there is towns is Cree communities. Cree is, a, is some of the First Nation communities in Canada. Mm. And uh, they were in an area where sometimes they'll have polar bears coming in. And they just, when they come in, they just, they just kill them. Because oh, no. those communities are hunters. Okay. They're hunters and they live, that's, yeah, they live off land and they live off uh, wildlife, right? And uh, yeah, so. I guess if they eat it, they feed off it. Yeah, and they if they see either wolves or polar bears, they yeah they just kill them because that's um, really sad. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah. you're starting at the Arctic Circle. Will you be able to see the Northern Lights from there? I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I've been to Yellowknife, which is pretty uh, far north as well. We're gonna be even farther north. So in Yellowknife. Uh, almost every day you see the northern lights and they're incredible they're amazing it's it's something like i don't i don't even i don't even know if any other day that i've say i've said wow so many times in <laughs> 10 minutes oh my gosh it's on yeah. my bucket list that's for sure and you'll be going on this leg of your journey between july and september it, so yeah. in the midst of summer what will the forecast be like to run through the arctic circle so there is, because you're so, so far up north, it's actually fall. So you have oh, kind okay. of an early fall. Yeah. So I was checking temperatures and the average will be minus seven Celsius, degrees Celsius, uh, give or take. Yeah, yeah. I guess depending on the year and depending on the conditions, we might get some early snow. Uh, we don't know, but we're hopeful. Like the reason I chose the fall there is because of the colors on the mountains. So they look way nicer, you know, those orangey, yellow, red colors versus the green colors in the summer Yeah. for that specific part of those mountains. And, and also, so you don't want to in, in, in this, this kind of terrain, you don't want to run in the summer because, because it could be way too many insects, like way too many bugs. And, and you don't want to run when it's too hot as well. Um, you don't want to run in, in winter because it's too cold and with snow, it just makes it a lot more complicated. You could do it in spring, but, um, but the colors in fall and the fall are way nicer Beautiful. than in spring. That's why we choose. And I needed that time for training as well. Yeah. Spring was way too early. Fair enough. And will you be camping again for that? Um, sort of like so we are hoping... So we're hoping to, we haven't found one. We were hoping to get, because of my first experience, you know, is because now my partner, Iris, uh, she's going to come with and she's going to drive the vehicle. Um, so I'm going to have a little bit more support because I know how, how harsh in your body can be and just having a place, especially in those uh, Arctic uh, conditions, it can be extremely windy, super cold. So if you don't get a good sleep, it's hard to recover. Uh, so sure. having a uh, you know a, a solid shelter, we're trying to get a, a trailer RV, 
so we can have a bathroom and a shower and a warm place to sleep. That's a great shower. Um, yeah. So otherwise, if we can't get a trailer, you know, a company to come on board with uh, providing a, a, a trailer RV, our second choice is a rooftop tent. Um, yeah. Because there's up the, a rooftop tent. Yeah. Like so it's a, a tent that you put on the roof of your car. Oh, okay. Vehicle. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're really nice. You know, you feel safer because you're elevated on top of the vehicle. But it's still a tent. It's a thicker material than a regular tent that you pitch in, but it's still flexible. So if it's very windy, it could, it could get uh, difficult to sleep and, uh, and, and cold, depending on the weather. But yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, it's very remote where we're going, that you barely, there's going to be a sections of hundreds of kilometers without anything like not a gas station nothing yeah um so yeah it's gonna be very very remote be beautiful though is there anything else on your bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet yeah um surfing i never done surfing yeah i skydive scuba dive which were probably uh bucket list i've flown in a helicopter so yeah so i think Oh, skiing. I want to learn how to ski because I snowboard. Yeah. And yeah, surfing. I, I, I would love how to surf. Amazing. And how can listeners contribute to your sort of fundraising for the next leg of your journey? So we have, um, if people go on my Instagram running to the end of the world, they can follow my journey, you know, even now my training and all that. And on my bio there you they can see a link to my to the kickstarter campaign the the girls uh, set up we have very few days left i think about 20 and uh yeah i really encouraging hopefully people can help us out to to raise that money to make this documentary happen because it's going to reach a lot of lives and hopefully motivate and inspire people and uh yeah so if they go to my running to the end of the world i have a website as well saying so, uh, it's run and then the number two, the end. So run to the end.com and all my social is in there. And yeah, they can see the gear that I use, uh, you know, the brands that are on board and the brands, you know, if there are any companies that want to get involved in this project, you know, they're uh, pro mental health. Uh, they can shoot me an email. My information is on the website and, uh, and we can have a conversation about that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on Thinking Off Peace. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and good luck with the Arctic Circle this summer. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, having me here on, the, on this podcast and uh, I'll be looking forward to chatting with you guys on social media. Thinking Off Peace is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.